Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Behind the Mask, African Philosophy of the Person. You'd think that all philosophers, wherever and whenever they lived, would agree about at least one thing, what it is to be a person. Philosophers are themselves persons, after all, and variations in culture wouldn't seem to make any difference, since every culture has persons in it. Besides, it's not like you have to undertake strenuous investigation into the nature of personhood. You are a person, and you're right there, ready to think about. On the other hand, persons are pretty complicated. Thoughts interrupt other thoughts, sensations battle with one another for our attention, desires gain and then lose the upper hand over other desires, and actions can both display settled moral character and depart from it. Inner life is not like an a cappella performance by a classically trained performer. It's more like a live show by Parliament Funkadelic I saw in the 1990s, which featured about 30 musicians who mostly got wasted backstage, but occasionally took turns wandering on stage to bang out an improvised solo. Flying in the face of this complexity, philosophers have occasionally offered rather simple accounts of personhood. Some, agreeing with Parliament Funkadelic that everything is on the one, reduce the person to a single principle. You are nothing but your body, or you are nothing but an immaterial soul, with a merely incidental relation to a body. A dualist might say that you are both an immaterial soul and a body, though a closer look at some notorious dualists shows them acknowledging a greater degree of multiplicity. Take Plato. In some dialogues, like the Republic and Timaeus, he gives the soul several parts that can struggle against one another. Or take Ishvara Krishna, the author of the founding text of the Samkhya tradition in ancient India. He was a dualist who contrasted the material principle called Prakriti to a principle of consciousness called Purusha. Yet he took account of our complex mental life by distinguishing in each person an intellect, a power of self-awareness, and a mind for thinking, to say nothing of further sensory powers and powers of the body. A platonic dualist who came to this treatise in search of a discussion of the soul might not be sure whether or not she found it there, despite the rich vocabulary used to analyze human psychology. Likewise, in the case of traditional African belief systems, one should not be too quick to say that a certain word or concept represents what philosophers, speaking English, might call soul or mind or spirit. A better strategy is to look closely at indigenous ideas and understand how they work, at first simply leaving their terminology untranslated. Admittedly, if we think of soul as a spark of the divine in each human, as that part of the person that makes him or her similar to God, then we find this notion in numerous African cultures. Thus, the Akan say that all persons are children of God, no one is a child of the earth, reflecting a conviction that each of us comes from the divine being called Niame. Similarly, the Ibo people hold that the immortality of human persons is a reflection of the immortality of God. But even if an afterlife of some sort plays a role in all or nearly all traditional African religions, this does not mean that these cultures are envisioning a single immaterial soul for each of us. Among the Dogon, it is believed that there are two parts of the person, which we might be tempted to call two souls, and which are respectively male and female. The Nupe, too, are said to postulate two souls, of which one reincarnates while the other goes back to God. 
But in the literature looking at African ideas about personhood from a philosophical point of view, the most widely discussed belief systems are those of the Akan and Yoruba. And in both cases, we find something more complicated than soul-body or soul-mind dualism. As Kwame Djeke and others have shown, the Akan conceptual scheme posits two psychological principles within each person over and above the body. These are called sunsum and kra, alternatively okra, but we'll keep to kra to keep clear that we are making persons, not Louisiana gumbo. Kra is the source of the person's life, and thus closely related to breath. It is given by nyame, or God, and returns to him after death. In this life, kra serves to guide the person towards his or her destiny. Thus, his kra is good means he is lucky. Visiting the Ga people, neighbors of the Akan with a similar psychological scheme, Joyce Engman likewise found them saying, his kla is with him, to mean that someone is lucky, and his kla has left him, to mean that someone has become mad. She found that they readily accepted the idea that this principle corresponds to what Europeans would call a guardian spirit. This casts some doubt on Jeke's suggestion of translating kra as soul. It seems rather that the kra is a spiritual power that oversees the life of a person and is not exactly identical to that person. If we were going to compare it to something in Platonic philosophy, we might rather see a resonance between the kra and the so-called daimon who guides the soul to its chosen fate in the myth of the afterlife, told at the end of Plato's Republic. A different role again is played by sunsum, which is said to escort the kra into life and back to God at the point of death. The Akan have a matrilineal kinship system, and see each person's bodies linking them to their mother's family through a blood tie. But the spiritual principle that is the sunsum links one to one's father. Akan sayings indicate a strong personality or imposing presence by speaking of a weighty sunsum. Here it's worth noting that one person can have more sunsum than another, whereas no one has more or less kra than anyone else. Furthermore, the sunsum is able to slip away from the body in dreams. It may also linger for some weeks after death before moving on to the world of the dead, during which time it is referred to as a kind of shadow. It seems that the sunsum retains its individuality after death, whereas the kra dissolves into the divinity of Niame. These points have led to a controversy between scholars of African philosophy over whether the Akan scheme makes the true person immaterial. In favor of this, the body is sometimes said to be only a physical mask for the true person. Each of us is really whatever is behind the mask of our physical shells. Certainly, the divine nature of the kra makes it tempting to say that it, at least, is indeed incorporeal. As for the sunsum, it may seem that this principle must be in some sense physical, since it has location and is capable of motion. It can, after all, wander off during dreams and hang around after death. Spirit mediums are also said to be capable of seeing the sunsum, and some have inferred from this that it is physical, since otherwise it could hardly be visible. But this would be a bit like arguing that ghosts in European culture are believed to be physical, because how else could you dress up as one for Halloween? Clearly, the spirit medium is using a special form of insight to be aware of the sunsum, so this doesn't seem to require that the sunsum is a material being. Insofar as the Akan beliefs commit them one way or another on this question, it seems better to say that the sunsum exists on a spiritual plane which is not the same as the body, 
but nonetheless allows the sunsum to interact with bodily things, or vice versa, as when mediums use supernatural abilities to see the sunsum of a departed person. Some of the same issues arise with the views on personhood found among the Yoruba. Here we have a still more complicated story. If Ishvara Krishna could have traveled from ancient India to visit the Yoruba, even he would have been impressed. For starters, we have, of course, the body, with a special psychological role being given to the okan, which means heart. As in English and many other languages, where heart has a more extended, perhaps metaphorical sense, like when a boxer's trainer says, that kid's got a lot of heart, okan is treated as a seat of emotional response. Thus, to strengthen the okan is to increase one's resolve. More rational or cognitive activities are meanwhile placed in the opolo, or brain. Then, on top of all that, we have the emi and ori. The distinctness of these principles is already shown by the fact that different gods of the Yoruba pantheon are responsible for fashioning them. Orisha Nla makes the body, and Oludumare the emi, while a divinity called Ajala is the so-called potter of ori. The emi is therefore what makes us, as we already saw the Akan putting it, children of God. Like Sunsum in Akan belief, the Yoruba emi can leave the body, especially in witchcraft. In more normal circumstances, it seems to be emi that accounts for consciousness, and it is that which is reincarnated in other bodies. In cases where punishment is called for, a human emi can be joined to an animal body after death, and in general, the Yoruba are happy to speak of animals and plants as possessing emi. Finally, we have the ori. Literally, this means head, but as with heart, the Yoruba give a more extended range of meaning to the word. It is the ori that chooses destiny before birth. In a fashion reminiscent of the kra among the akan, the ori then binds the individual to his or her fate. We might see the unfolding of destiny as an interaction between the ori, the head, and the okan, the heart, with the ori steering each of us through life while one is emotionally engaged with the resulting events through the okan. For this reason, the Yoruba sacrificed to the Ori for a more favorable lot, in other words, in hopes that destiny will smile upon them. The upshot is that the Yoruba understanding of the person resonates with, but does not simply mirror what we have found in the Akan. Here is what one scholar, Segun Gbagdegesin, has written in an attempt to line up the two belief systems. Kra in the Akan system seems to be the equivalent of Emi among the Yoruba, but while Kra is postulated as the bearer of destiny, Emi is not. The Akan Sunsum, as that which thinks, feels, etc., seems the equivalent of Yoruba Okan, but while Sunsum is postulated as the determinant of power, success, and wealth, Okan is not. Kra in Akan is postulated as responsible for activities for which the Yoruba postulate two parts, Emi and Ori. This is a good illustration of something we've said before and will be saying again there is not just one philosophical system to be found in African tradition. Rather, each culture has its own teachings without even getting into the issue of disagreements that may arise between members of a single culture. As for the philosophical interest of this material, we've already been seeing that these African cultures recognize a plurality of psychological powers or forces, positing two or even three principles where we might have expected to find them speaking simply of the soul. But there's another interesting point in what we've said, namely the way that the Akan Kra 
and Yoruba Ori seem to be simultaneously a part of the individual person and outside that person. Thus, the Ori is on the one hand a seat of personality and represents the life that was chosen before birth. On the other hand, it stands above the person so that one can appeal to it for favor, be affected by it as if by an outside influence, and either fulfill the destiny it has chosen or fail to do so. As one Yoruba saying has it, he who is wise is made so by his ori. He who is not wise, it is his ori that decrees that he should be stupid. Of course, our point is not that the Yoruba or the Akan with their notion of kra are hopelessly confused, running together the incompatible notions of an external guardian angel and an internal soul. Rather, we want to highlight a genuinely fruitful idea, namely that each person may include a part or principle that is not entirely the same as that person, or at least that person's awareness. To mention Platonism one more time, we find in that ancient Greek tradition the idea that a higher part of the soul could offer guidance to the individual without being part of conscious life. This is what Plotinus understood by the daimon often spoken of in Hellenic religious literature and by Plato himself. The Yoruba and Akan seem to have had a similar notion. In another corner of African tradition, we can find another case of entities being in some sense identical to living persons, and in another sense not. We have in mind the spirits of ancestors. We've already seen how some aspect of a person can linger after death in Akan belief. Similarly, the Sisala of northern Ghana believe that a part of the human called the Dima, one might with due caution call this the soul, remains around the community of the deceased after death as a nedima, or ghost. This is considered to be a highly undesirable state, because after losing its body, the dima has no kinsman. It needs help from those still living to go off to the realm of the ancestors, where it remains until it has been forgotten entirely by those still alive. The deceased may make themselves known in the lives of the living, to remind them of the obligations they owe to their ancestors, for instance by causing illness. When this happens, a diviner may be consulted to learn which ancestor has been angered. Connected to such beliefs is the phenomenon of spirit possession, which exists in many African religions and also in African diaspora culture. The basic idea here is that a living person, the medium, is temporarily taken over by an ancestral spirit. Tony Perman's study of spirit possession among the Ndao of Zimbabwe describes how individual people are linked to specific spirits from birth. During the possession, the medium is passive, apparently being taken over from the outside by the ancestral spirit, and may not even remember what happened once the episode ends. Yet the spirit is in some sense with the medium at all times, beginning at birth. What one witnesses in a possession is the awakening of the ancestor, its use of the medium's body to make itself present in the corporeal world as it cannot usually do. The link between medium and spirit is so strong that the medium's individuality is shaped by that link. As Perman writes, because the spirit is usually resident from birth and has a tangible impact on that person's personality, skills, or way of knowing, the spirit can actually be considered part of the medium. Consequently, it is an aspect of that person's sense of self. Here, then, we have another example of what one might call semi-identity. The medium is clearly not just the same person as the spirit. To the contrary, the medium's consciousness and what we might usually think of as his or her personality or personhood 
is briefly replaced by that of the spirit in a possession. Yet neither is the spirit wholly other than the medium. Much as with the Yoruba Ori, the ancestor in endowed belief is outside or above the person, but also within him or her. So far in this episode, we've been considering the nature of personhood from a metaphysical point of view. What is a person? From how many parts is the person made? And to what extent are all those parts entirely within the person? But this is not yet to account for a significant theme connected to personhood in African culture. It's the theme revealed by such sayings as these, both from the Akan, When a person descends from heaven, he descends into a human society. And, a person is not a palm tree that he should be self-complete or self-sufficient. As these maxims suggest, you don't get to be a person simply by having the right metaphysical equipment, an ori or kra or sunsum to go with your body. You become a person by taking up your destiny and pursuing it, which above all means growing into a member of the community. As Ifeanyi Menkiti has put it, personhood is something that has to be achieved. This tendency to define the person in terms of their relation to a larger group has been hailed as one of the most distinctive and also philosophically appealing features of traditional African culture. In that spirit, we hope you'll join us and the rest of the listeners next time for a look at African communalism here on the History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 